Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to speak to you this morning as a shepherd, as a pastor. And what I'm going to say to you this morning is from love in my heart that I have from you as God's people. And the reason I share this in love is because if I didn't share this with you, it would show that I didn't love you. So what you're hearing is a journey that I've gone on for a few years now of where your pastor has come and some convictions that I have. So I'm trying to be real transparent this morning because I love you and I love God's people. We can look around in our world today and we can be very discouraged. We can be very depressed. We can be very shocked at what we see in the world. And you might be like me and throw your hands up and say, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Or this is not your father's Oldsmobile. We live in a world that's very different than a lot of us have grown up in. And and, and we can get very discouraged. And we're faced with a looming question. And that looming question that I know I've struggled with is this. In such a secular, postmodern culture in which we live, How can God possibly bring revival? How can God break through the sin and the junk and bring revival? Now we know that God is able to do that. That's not not the issue. God is able. And I strongly believe that God is able to bring revival. But the second question is where I want us to spend some time this morning. And the second question is this. If God can bring revival, the second question is this. What is His method And what is his message in bringing revival to our nation? And I don't want to so much as focus on the nation, those sinners out there. I want to focus on us as Emmanuel Baptist Church, where the rubber meets the road. You and me as God's people here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, how is God going to bring revival here? What's his method? And let me ask you a very personal question. What are you feeding yourself on the other six days of the week? When you come here on Sunday mornings, are you shocked by what you receive because you've had a diet of junk food, cotton candy the rest of the week? What are you spending time on filling your life with? We live in a world of images and sound bites and iPods and 25-inch, 50-inch, 150-inch Jumbotron TVs purpose-driven this, program-driven that, megachurch this, megachurch that. We live in a world where we're bombarded with images and messages that vie for our attentions in a culture that screams out that God is irrelevant. And so my question for you, and this hinges very dearly on revival, is what are you feeding your soul with? Is it junk food? Is it cotton candy? And this has a profound issue on revival. Let me be real honest with you. As a pastor, there's a lot of pressures in this world. When I sit there in my office as pastor, and over the past few years, I face a lot of temptations. Because we live in a world where the customer is king. We live in a world where it's about numbers and buildings and budgets. And the bigger your church is, the better. And we've got to keep the customer happy. And we've got to keep them coming back. And we've got to change the message. And we've got to be entertaining. And I've got to be all this or people won't come to church. 
And so I'm tempted, and you will not, you'd be surprised at what comes across my desk and what comes across my email of the experts out there telling me how to grow a church. Some of it's just plain stupid, some of it's shocking, and some of it's just downright unbiblical. And so I, as your pastor, face a temptation. For example, I am tempted with these types of messages. I'm told that what Americans need is better marriages, better families, better finances, and I don't disagree with that. We do need better things. But what I'm told is that I'm supposed to just preach happy principles and a list of do's and don'ts and to tell you to raise good kids and to raise a good family, but it's devoid of any gospel message rooted in Jesus Christ. And that makes no sense. Why in the world would I stand up and tell you to have a better family and a better marriage and a better life and not give you the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power to change his life, to change your life? If what I preach could be acceptable in an Islamic mosque, in a Jewish synagogue, in a Mormon tabernacle, in a Unitarian Universalist church, I have not preached a Christian message. It's got to be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or I'm told that what you need is to have your ego stroked and you just need some positive self-esteem messages from a motivational speaker. You're okay. I'm okay. Let me just give you a little bit of Dr. Phil and Oprah with a little bit of God tacked on. And you just need to reach your potential. You haven't, you haven't been all that you can be. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of motivational speeches. I'm going to stroke your ego. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about God's wrath or God's holiness. We don't talk about discipleship or commitment because after all, I need to give you a message that's non-offensive. So you'll keep coming back for more. Or... I'm told that what we really need is we really need to give you information on how to vote. Now, what Leroy talked about this morning is important, but a lot of people tell you that we need to make the pulpit a political rally. What we need to do is rally the troops, and I need to give you a political message every week, and we need to storm the gates of hell with power politics. Now, I'm not telling you not to vote, but I'm saying that God works a little bit different than power politics. He works through the gospel. So what then makes a church grow? What causes God to work? And I'm going to stop right now because there's a lot of distractions this morning. Okay? So please, let's stay focused. Sorry, I didn't mean to go that way. We live in an age that's consumeristic. We live in an age that's market-driven. We live in an age where we've got to keep the customer satisfied, coming back week after week. And if we don't deliver something that's palatable, that's non-offensive, that is, that is nice and easy, people will not come back week after week. And let me stand before you as your pastor with love in my heart and tell you that I've come to the full conviction that that has no place in God's house in a market-driven, consumeristic society where we want to be non-offensive That has no place in God's house if we truly want to see revival come to God's church. It's man-centered methodology. And I don't care what man has to say. I care what God has to say. I don't care what the pundits, I don't care what the megachurches in California, the megachurches on wherever, I don't care what they're saying about what needs to happen to cause this church to grow. I could care less. What I care about is what God and His Word says about this church in this place right here in Sterling, Colorado. That's what we're about is what God says to us today. And so what's more important, the market or the message? The customer or the content? 
The consumer or the confession of faith? For you see, if we're concerned about the message, then the gospel wins out. If we're concerned about the, about the market and we're concerned about the customer, then that wins out. And very clearly, one of the two will win out if we're not careful. The content, the message, or the customer. A.W. Tozer writes this, and I'm going to read this slowly because he's a man of a lot of words. This was written in the 1950s, okay? So keep this perspective in mind. Quote, Our churches these days are filled with a soft breed of Christian that must be fed a diet of harmless fun to keep them interested. About theology they know little. Scarcely any of them have read even one of the great Christian classics, but most of them are familiar with religious fiction and spine-tingling films. We are offering a take-it-easy Pollyanna type of approach that does not seem to ever have heard of total commitment to one who is our Lord and Savior. We must tell stories and jokes and entertain and amuse in order to have a few people in the audience. In many churches, Christianity has been watered down until the solution is so weak that if it were poison, it would not hurt anyone, and if it were medicine, it would not cure anyone. That could be said about today's church. The anemic state that we find the church in America in, and in revivals, as we've seen the history of revivals coming to our land and across the ocean and other places, there's been a recovery of the gospel message which reveals the power and the wisdom of God. Corinth. The Corinthian society was very similar to ours. In Corinth, they were involved in debates. They were involved in philosophers. I bet you if they had TV back in Corinth, they would have CNN with everybody's opinions. They would have the talk shows. Everybody was into talking and debating and philosophizing. Everybody had an opinion about something. As a matter of fact, Corinth was so bad that they actually made up a word called to Corinthianize. You know what it was? To Corinthianize? It meant that you were sexually immoral. The town was so full of sexual immorality, so full of pagan idolatry, so full of opinions and wisdom and power, and everybody following this and that, that the Corinthian Christians had become embarrassed of the message of the gospel. And Paul wants to set them straight and say, I've got a message for you this morning, Corinthians, who are a little bit embarrassed by this offensive message of the cross. I want to get it through your thick skulls, Corinthians, that you don't need to be ashamed. And we live in a world where people seem to be ashamed of the gospel. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And read the word of the Lord and hear the word of the Lord this morning as he speaks to our hearts about what truly is powerful, what truly is wise, what truly does change people's lives and grows churches. Starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. 
Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now traveling through chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul begins by saying there's only two classes of people in this world. There are those who are perishing because they've refused to trust Christ for their salvation, and there are those that are being saved because of the gospel message. You are either lost or you're saved. You're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. You are either blinded in your transgressions or you're either alive in Christ. And on the day of judgment, nobody's going to be able to stand before God and be right in the middle. You're either one or the other. And Paul makes it very clear at the beginning and says, you are either perishing or you're being saved. And the way that God communicates this message is through a foolish message. A foolish message. Notice what Paul says here. The message or the word of the cross is foolishness, is folly. That word foolishness and folly shows up a lot in this passage of Scripture. You know what the Greek word is? Moros. You know what we get from that? Moronic. The cross is moronic to those that are perishing. They don't understand it. The cross is an instrument of death. The cross is bloody. The cross has become sanitized in our culture. Do you notice people wear crosses all the time? People wear crosses on their shirts, crosses around their necks. No big deal, right? In our day, it would be like wearing an electric chair around your neck. Now, if you walked around with an electric chair around your neck, most people would think that you were unduly obsessed with things morbid and a little weird. But the cross is offensive. The cross is bloody. And the world doesn't understand the cross. As a matter of fact, think about the movie Passion of the Christ with Mel Gibson. I've talked to a few people that saw that movie that were not believers in Jesus Christ. And they watched the movie, and to them, they couldn't quite understand why a man had to be beaten to a pulp and die on a cross. Big deal. To them, it's no more than Saving Private Ryan or Braveheart where a man was martyred for his belief system. They don't understand the magnitude of the cross. It doesn't make sense. It's moronic. It's foolish. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The cross has power. And Paul's going to quote Isaiah 29, 14, where he says, I, God's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God's going to take everything in this world system that seems to make sense, and he's going to turn it upside down. He's going to reject it and say, I'm going to communicate something that's totally countercultural, totally different than what any of you think is going to happen. I'm going to communicate a foolish message, message through a foolish method, through foolish people, and a foolish cross, and the world's not going to make sense of this. And then Paul calls the culture to account. He says, where's the one who's wise? Where's the debater? Where's the scribe? Jew and Gentile both. Stand up and look at God in the face and say, can you begin to even understand the God of the universe? Match wits with God. I dare you to. 
And Paul says, you can't even match wits with God. God's going to totally revolutionize what you think the way the world is. And you know what? It grieves my heart, and it should grieve your heart. It should, it should cause you great burden when people in your life are faced with the cross and they reject it. And it is moronic. It should, it should burn your heart to see people walking away from Jesus Christ in rejection. I've been very sobered lately. I'm doing a study, personal study in the book of Revelation. Have you stopped and thought about the lake of fire for a moment? It's eternal. And those that are not in Christ are going to spend eternity in a lake of fire. (laughs) If that doesn't upset you or sadden you, then there's something wrong with you. Because Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And notice in God's sovereignty, he didn't choose to reveal the gospel through wisdom, through intelligence. Aren't you thankful that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be saved? I'm sure thankful for that. Aren't you thankful that God didn't use marketing and wisdom to get his message out? Notice what what Paul says in God's sovereignty in verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. God uses a foolish method called preaching. A foolish method called preaching. And preaching has fallen on hard times these days. I'm being real honest with you. The things that I get as pastor that come across my desk, they say people won't sit and listen to a man of God stand up and and they won't sit there for 30 minutes or 45 minutes and hear preaching. They won't sit that long. You've got to to entertain them. You've got to have things blowing up on stage. You've got to have chainsaws. You've got to have trapeze artists. You've got to have video clips and jumbotron TVs and all this fluff or people are not going to sit and listen to you because we might lose the customer. And if we make the customer unhappy, they're going to go down the street where something more exciting is happening. And so we have to try to drum up all this weird stuff to try to get people to come to church. And Paul says, you know what's foolish? Preaching. Now here's what's amazing to me. This is the amazing thing. Let me look you in the eye and say this, okay? I am told as your pastor to be funny and entertaining and amusing while there are Islamic leaders around the world that are willing to die for their faith and go suicide bombing into buildings for a cause that is totally pagan. They are not shy about what they believe. Islam is up front. They're willing to die, and they're calling the rest of the world to embrace Islam. And yet here in America, we're told to not be offensive. Don't be too serious. Just be funny. And you know what's even more amazing than that is the pastor of the largest church in America won't preach the gospel won't preach the cross, won't preach holiness, won't preach salvation because he's got 2,000 Muslims in his audience and he does not want to offend them. Does that make sense? It does not. We live in a day and an age where people want to be entertained. And it was no different in Paul's day. Paul say, Jews demand signs. The Jews came to Paul and say, Paul, bring the miracle brigade. Paul, you've got to do signs and wonders. You've got to do something to wow us. Walk on water, Paul. Do something grandiose or we're not going to believe you. We have whole denominations and movements built upon this where they drum up attendance by all these amazing things that are supposedly happening and they have to get bigger and better each week for people to come and experience that. Or the Greeks, 
We want wisdom. Paul, wow us with an argument. Paul, tell us a funny story. Paul, be articulate. Paul, we want to hear your stories. We want, we want, to, just be, we want to be wowed by your eloquence. And there's pastors that are not preachers. They're stand-up comedians. And they talk more about themselves than they do about Christ. What is Paul's aim? What is Paul's aim? And I'll stand before you and tell you this is my aim as your pastor. And I know Trevor sitting back there, this is his aim. And I know this is the aim of our elders, and I pray this is the aim of our church. Look at what Paul's aim is in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Preach. Preach means to announce, to declare, to authoritatively stand up and say, thus says the, word, uh, thus says the Lord from the Word of God. In the Greek culture, it was a, a person that went out and heralded a message, cried out in the marketplace for a message to be heard. And contrary to what you hear today, it is right and appropriate for a man of God to stand before God's people and say, I've spent months and weeks in hard study to understand what God is saying to his people, and I'm going to stand and I'm going to expound it to you. It's right and appropriate to do that. And preaching is falling on hard times. Preaching is not discussing. Preaching is not sharing. Preaching is announcing. There's a big movement, movement right now to bash preaching, and it, it It bothers me. Let me just be real honest with you. There's a movement called the Emergent Movement. And I will spend maybe a Wednesday night Acts class talking about the Emergent Movement. They are actually telling young pastors, younger than myself, that preaching is useless, it's foolish, don't even bother with it, people don't want to hear preaching. Instead, what you need to do is gather your your congregation together and everybody sit around and you just kind of discuss what the Bible says and everybody kind of gives their opinion and we kind of walk out and we're better for it. Now, I'm not opposed to to discussion. I'm not opposed to Bible study. I'm not opposed to asking questions. I'm not opposed to, to dialogue, but that is not preaching. There's a time and place for that. And now, what's the message that Paul preaches? We preach Christ. I don't stand up here and talk about myself. I don't give you happy stories. I mean, I, obviously I give illustrations and you need to see a little bit in my life. But my message is not me. My message is Christ. And that was Paul's message. We preach the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. And what do we preach about Christ? We preach Christ crucified. Perfect tense. Last week I told you the perfect tense in the original language meant an act was completed once in the past, and it has ongoing effects into the present. We preach the once and for all, total, completed, it is finished, once and for all, finished work of Christ on the cross, that we stand completed in that atonement today, because Christ yelled, it is finished, while he was on the cross, and yet this is moronic. It's a stumbling block. It's a scandalon, as the original language says to the Jews. Why was this so scandalous to the Jews? Because to the Jews, they knew the prophecy from Deuteronomy 21-23 that anyone who was hung on a tree was a curse, was rejected by God. The very proof that Jesus was hung on a cross to the Jews was he's rejected by God. And Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now let me ask you a very simple question. Was Jesus Christ rejected by God on the cross? You bet. If Christ had not been rejected, if Christ had not been cursed, if Christ had not taken the full wrath of God upon the cross in our place, there would be no salvation for us. Christ did become cursed on a cross, but that was because the innocent became guilty so that the guilty could become innocent. And that makes no sense to Jews, and it makes no sense to us who are Gentiles. 
It's exciting for us that are being saved, though. Because notice what he says in verse 24. But to those of us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, if the message is foolish and the method is foolish, preaching, what's the means God uses? Well, this is where it gets personal. He uses us and we are foolish. Notice what Paul says. A foolish means sinful people carrying this message. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Basically, Paul's saying, you guys were nothing really that big. You weren't all that. As a matter of fact, you guys were actually probably the lowest on the totem pole as far as what the world looks at. And that gives me great encouragement, doesn't it, you? Think about it for a moment. Where in the world is Sterling, Colorado? Or Holyoke, or Haxton, or Fleming, or Iliff, or Padroni? We're on the backside of nowhere, okay? Let's just be honest. Now, we're proud of where we're from, but we are on the backside of nowhere. The exciting thing about revival is God uses backside of nobody, the backside of nowhere, nobodies, to advance his kingdom. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Revival, which I'm still reading, makes this quote. I want you to listen to it. Listen to what he says. This is great. You see, when man does something, he likes to do it in big cities, doesn't he not? He does it in a big way, and he feels that this is essential to his success. When God sent his son into this world, he was not born in Jerusalem, but Bethlehem, the very least of the cities of Judah. It is in Bethlehem, the little villages that people have never heard of, that the mighty things often happen. And this is a wonderful thing. The next revival may break out in a little hamlet that you and I have never heard of. We people in these big cities of ours may be passed by and God may do this mighty thing in some unknown little place with a small group of people. That can happen in revival. I believe that. Do you believe that? That God can use Emmanuel Baptist Church, Sterling, Colorado, backside of nowhere, out in the middle of the northeastern plains of Colorado, wheat fields, cornfields, millet fields, sugar beet area, whatever else you want to add, to do a great thing. Remember James and John when they preached and they healed the crippled man and the authorities came to them and they got in trouble in Acts 4.13? This is what it says in Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were ordinary, uneducated men... They were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Here we go again. It doesn't matter how smart we are as a church. It doesn't matter how talented we are, how creative, how persuasive, how intelligent, how much marketing, how much man-made things that we put into this. Notice what it says. These were common, uneducated, ordinary men, but what was the big difference? They had been with Jesus. It just takes one child, one youth, one adult, one teenager who's been with Jesus to change the world. And that's all it takes. And if somehow I could talk you into heaven, somebody else could come and talk you out. If I could use my ingenuity to persuade you to get into the gospel and to believe the gospel, and I could do all these things, and we could do all these things, and we, 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 where's God in the equation? He's not. God is not in the equation when it's we. Because notice, What can only God do? Look at verse 30. Only God can transform lives. I'm not persuasive enough. 
I'm not talented enough. We're not talented enough. We're not savvy enough to actually transform a life. Only God can do that. Verse 30, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Only God can transform lives. Look at these words he uses, righteousness. Only a sovereign God can declare you not guilty before God. That's what being righteous is, is that declaration legally that you're not guilty before God. Only God can justify a sinner. Sanctification, that's the process where you become more Christ-like. Only God can do that in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Redemption, that's being bought back out of slavery in your sins by the ransom price of Christ and his blood. Only God can do these things, okay? I, as your pastor, cannot talk you into those things. You, sitting there in the pew, cannot wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to redeem myself. I'm going to justify myself. I'm going to sanctify myself. I'm going to make myself a better person. You cannot do that. Only the sovereign God can do that. But I think that our world has forgotten that. Because you look around at so many pastors and churches and this and that, and they're thinking, what's going to change people's lives? Marketing, man-centered methodology, human wisdom, weird stuff, fluff. No, it's the power of God. The power of God. But then God calls out foolish ministers. Okay? I'm a fool, I admit. Foolish ministers. And in a sense, I am a fool. Because think about this for a moment. If the world hates the message of the cross, and it's offensive to people, and it doesn't make sense, and it's, it's something that's not palatable, then why in the world would I stand up and preach it every week? That sounds foolish, doesn't it? What am I doing up here? Why in the world am I standing up here preaching something that I know is patently offensive? And that's why so many pastors are willing to be tempted to change the message because they get confronted with the fact that if I preach the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, I might lose people. I'll be real honest with you this morning. And hear my heart. I don't really care, okay? Now, I do care about your soul. And I care about your life. And I care about your eternal destiny. But if I'm here to please men and I'm here to give a message that's palatable to men, and I'm always trying to be like a chameleon going towards the whims of men, then I'm living a ludicrous lifestyle as a pastor. I need to be concerned what God says. And if I say something that's offensive and people leave, I pray for you, I love you, but I've got to stick to what God says. And here's the, here's the kicker. I get an email each week from this organization called Voice of the Martyrs. It's about persecution in the worldwide church. And let me read to you what's happening around the world. This is just one example. Infuriated by reports that Christians were scheduling revival meetings at the Indonesia Evangelical Mission Church in the Aka province, a militant Islamic mob set the worship center ablaze on September 1st. Local Muslims from the town of Siompi reduced the building to ashes in an attempt to wipe out those in their province not bowing down to Allah. Church members have moved their worship services to a local house as they refuse to buckle under Muslims' attacks. Now let me ask you a question. We have pastors and missionaries and brothers and sisters around the world who are willing to die for this message and have their churches burned down and be beheaded and being dragged into courts and killed and I'm told to lighten up and be non-offensive. 
And I'm the first to stand up and say, shame on me and shame on us. How flippantly we treat the gospel of Jesus Christ when there's people dying for this around the world. And that's why people from other countries call us in America lightweights. They really do. They say, you have no idea what it means to stand up for Christ. You're in your cushy little churches where you have carpet and air conditioning and heat and you've got cushiony chairs and you're worried about whether the pastor's going to get done on time so I can go to the restaurant and get my $20 meal while there's people living in mud huts worshiping God in fear of somebody coming in with a machete and chopping off their head. Now, I'm not here to scare anybody or lay a guilt trip, but shame on us for not standing up for this truth in a world of compromise. Now, here's a question. (laughs) Why preach it? If it's so offensive and people are willing to die for it and it's, a, it's the gospel message of the bloody cross of Christ, why in the world preach it? Well, notice what Paul says. And if you have the NIV, I'm going to pick on you just for a minute because there's probably not as very good translation in NIV as there is in the King James and the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Why do we proclaim this message? Because it is the testimony of God. The testimony of God. It is God's very word to his people in the inscripturated word of the Holy Bible. It's not my opinion. It's not your opinion. It's not what some people thought up. It is God's very testimony of himself to us. And so, because it's God's testimony... I'm bound to preach it. I'm not preaching myself. I'm not preaching opinions. I'm preaching God's testimony about himself that he's urged me to proclaim. And that word proclaim was often used of of going out and announcing the the word of a ruler that gave you the authority to go out and speak on their behalf. And so I see myself this way as a pastor. I am commissioned by God Almighty to give his word to you, not my word. The word of God. His testimony. And that's why I preach it, because it's not my word. And notice what Paul says. Let this be your desire. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, as Paul's saying, all I did was sit there and preach evangelistic messages about the cross every week. Now, we know from the other parts of Scripture that Paul talks about a lot of other things, but Paul is making a very bold statement saying, in my heart, in my mind, in my life, I'm never going to lose sight of the fact that the glorious old rugged cross is my glory. I'm going to cling to that old rugged cross. I'm going to preach Christ and Him crucified. I'm not going to lose sight of that beauty. Now, let me ask you a question. Would Paul be a good candidate for a pastor search committee? Blight number one on his resume. Murderer. What did Paul bring to the Corinthians? In a world that valued wisdom, in a world that valued eloquence, in a world that valued power, in a world that wants slick marketing, in a world that wants everything to be all snazzy and jazzy, what did Paul bring? Well, notice what he says. I came to you with weakness, fear, and trembling. I didn't come with a big budget. I didn't come with inflatable balloons. I didn't come with this huge marketing plan. I didn't come with slick brochures. I didn't come with my charismatic personality. I brought three bags, three things in my bag of tricks. Fear, weakness, and much trembling. Why? If Paul or myself or any other preacher could wow you with our eloquence, then what would you say? 
that church is growing on the fact that the pastor is charismatic. Or I got saved because that guy's very persuasive. Paul says, no, this is to be a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And let me ask you a question. Do you want your life? Do you want your ministry? Do you want your church to be based upon the schemes of man and the personalities of man or on the power of God? I, for one, want it to be on the power of God. If it's based on me, we're, we're, we're on a hard road to hoe, folks. If it's based on Trevor or the elders, we're in the wrong business. Anytime the church falls in love with men or the schemes of men, we are bound to fall flat on our face every time. It's about the power of God being demonstrated in our lives, not personalities. And let me ask you to bear with me here for just a few moments. I'm not going to back down from this message of preaching Christ and Him crucified. There's too much at stake. There's a lake of fire and a real hell. And I'm bound by God to preach Christ and Him crucified. I know it's offensive. I know there's people that are going to look at it and probably walk out and say, he's the foolish man, most foolish man I've ever heard. I'm not going back to Emmanuel. They're, they're, they're fanatical there. They talk about Jesus too much. They talk about the cross. They're too much into blood. They're too much into Jesus. And another word I have for that is, who cares, okay? Now, I want to be sensitive. I really am a sensitive guy. You know that. But I'm, I'm not responsible for those people on the day of judgment when they stand before God and have to take account for what they did with the cross. But I will have to take account for how I handled the message as a preacher of the gospel. On the day of judgment, I will stand before God and was I faithful in presenting the gospel message to people. And let me ask you a question. What can this church provide that no other place on earth can? Let's be real. Let's be real honest, real particular. What can this church provide that no other place on earth can? You tell me. Hopefully you know by now in revival. Very simple. If we compete with Hollywood, we'll lose every time. If we compete with Disneyland, we'll lose every time. If we compete with Madison Avenue, we'll lose every time. The one thing that we can provide that no other place on earth can is the power of God to change lives. The unconditional love of Christ in transforming people's lives and the power of God is the one thing that nobody else can, can hold a candle to the church on. And you might say, hooray for you, Sean. I'm really happy that we have a pastor that's not going to back down and preach the gospel and we can trust our pastor to preach Christ and him crucified. Yeehaw, yay for you, Sean. We've got a great church. You're not getting off the hook that easy. You have a responsibility as church members to be just as much a part of this gospel message as I do as your pastor. And I want to ask you again to evaluate some things in your life. What are you feeding on the other six days of the week so that when you come here, you're not shocked? Or you're not gagging because you've got too much coming into you? What are you feeding yourself on? If you're listening to Christian radio and Christian broadcasting, is it sound theology where they preach Christ crucified or is it a bunch of weird stuff? And if you have any questions, come see me because I'll let you know what the weird stuff is. Because I know what the weird stuff is. Are you prepared to hear God's word preached when you come in? Are you walking in with an attitude of prayer saying, today God's going to speak to me? 
And let me be a little bit more specific. I truly strongly believe revival will not come to this church if there is relationships that are not healthy. So if you have unforgiveness in your heart or you have lack of reconciliation or you're at odds with another church member, you need to get things right before you walk in those doors or before you walk out those doors so that we're people of love, that we're a people that when the world sees us, they will know us. They'll know we're Christians by our bumper stickers, right? They'll know we are Christians by the little fish on the back of our car. They'll know we are Christians by how loud we turn up K-Love. They'll know we are Christians by what? Our love. Speak the truth in love. Now, I'm done. Almost. May it never be this. May it never be that if God does in His sovereignty bring revival, and I pray He does every day, and we see people getting converted to Christ, we see people getting saved, we see people transformed in their lifestyles, we see the community transformed, we see reconciliation, we see families brought together, we see some major work of God that we never, ever sit back and pat ourselves on the back and say, look what we did. Our worship team was so awesome. Our pastor was so awesome. Our youth group was so awesome. Our children's ministry is so awesome. Everything about us is so awesome. God is just so awesome to have. I mean, we're just so privileged to be on, for God to have us on his team. We, we, we. May it never be so that we pat ourselves on the back. And, and that's a sin, by the way, a sin of pride to say we have generated. And let's not worship the new building, by the way. Let's not just sit there and think, well, once we get the new building, that's going to be the, the magic bullet. That's going to be the key to everything. Once we get the new building, then we'll really start to see God move. Let me tell you something. God could wipe out our building. God could wipe out this building. We meet in homes or we meet in mud huts and God could still do a move of God. He could still do because the church is not where we go. It's who we are. This is just a building. You guys are the church. We're interconnected in divine unity through Christ. But may we give testimony to the fact that God in His sovereignty has decided to use a small band of insignificant backwoods, Sterling, Colorado, foolish, weak, sinful people that nobody's ever heard of to do a great work. And revival breaks out not because we're all that, but because He's all that. And that we were obedient to the preaching Christ and Him crucified. Like I said, I really don't care what the church down the street does. I don't care what anybody else does. I'm your pastor. This is Emmanuel Baptist Church. We're going to stand on God's word as long as I'm your pastor. We're going to preach Christ and Him crucified. Now, we need to love our other churches and love our other brothers and sisters, but I'm more concerned about where God's moving us as a church. And I want to close with one passage of Scripture. Psalm 115.1. Let this be our prayer. I'm not going to give any announcements tonight. We're not going to have an altar call. I'm just going to leave this passage with you, and I'm going to ask you to leave after we pray. I want you just to think about this message. A little bit different. I think you just need to think about what I'm talking about this morning. Leave with the weight of this scripture on your head. Leave with the way this message in your heart. And leave in an attitude of understanding what God is calling me personally to do. Let me read this. Psalm 115.1 Not to us, O Lord. Not to us to us but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness let's pray